Um, my work specializes also, like Lisa, in the human-animal relationship, uh, but also uh, particularly interested in the small. And something that art and science share is this uh, desire to make the invisible visible. Um, I'm trained as a, sculpt as a sculptor, and I, uh, I really like objects and physicality of materials. But I'm going to show you one of the projects that took me away from the traditional way of making sculptures. I decided to make a flea circus uh, for real, and that implied training the fleas, building all the props, making videos, um, so I consider my sculpture skills used in, you know, making all of the little apparatus um, for the fleas, and they were actually uh, practical. They, you know, they had a, a purpose, um, and but involved also the use of my own persona. I had two two personas: Professor Cardoso and the Queen of the Fleas. <laughs> Um, I never thought I would do anything like that. I always, uh, also I didn't know I was going to use technology. Uh, and there I am performing at the Sydney Opera House in the year 2000, along with my husband who is a video artist. And he was filming uh, live the, the actions of the fleas and we were projecting them in the big screens. Um, he helped me bring this art form to a larger audience. In the 19th century, flea circuses were a uh, tradition, uh, in, and it was quite um, an important one. They was very sophisticated. But uh, the audience, it was like a handful of people. When I first started, I had that little pavilion that I show you, and I only allowed 20 people at most in, and they just have to look like this and see this little dot kind of jumping around. Um, so very quickly, we realized we needed to use technology to show the, to the other 300 people that wanted to get in and couldn't get in. So we had to improvise with somebody with a handheld camera filming the action and shooting a, a video on a theater next door. Uh, so that was in 94. And so I, you know, so I developed the project for over six years and then ended up with this choreographed performance in which the camera work was uh, essential and the, the video technology, um, what's, what brought it, made it current um, to this day and age. When I was doing research about the fleas, I found this quote that talks about the um, genital apparatus of the male flea, and it's considered one of the wonders of the insect world. Um, a decade, a decade or so passed, and I was making other things and other art projects, but one day, I, you know, this, this always was in my head, and I thought, I'm going to see if it's only fleas that are well endowed or if there are other creatures. So I started to do research, and I found out that there was this incredible diversity, morphological diversity in genitalic structures. So I um, started this, this project. Um, my vision was always do a museum for my collection of genitalia. And the first one, the first series I made was uh, one of the pieces that we have here. And this series is called, it's not size that matters, it is shape. Um, I actually had not finished this, uh, the flea thing, 
but I can, you can see the male thing. And I was very intrigued why scientists dissect and study uh, something so small and so useless. <laughs> uh, you know, why would you want to know how it works? You know, it's very strange. So there is something, um, I had not finished that, that piece. I still have to make my flea artwork. But anyway, I went to the Australian Museum, and this is the electronic microscope collection, a specimen collection. And in each of these little dishes, there are specimens that have been imaged. So they are gold-coated. Um, so the electron microscope bounces the light on the gold coating and uh, then the image gets, gets, gets captured. So I went there and I said, do you have any animal genitalia in your collection? And Sue Lindsay, who is the microscopist, said, yeah, in fact, we do. So she put out this little dish and we ended up making this image. This is the phallus of... Uh, little snail from the Sydney Harbour. And um, it's called the Phalomedusa solida, and it was named after the shape of the male part of this snail. And as you probably know, uh, snails are hermaphrodite. So when I look at this image, I ask, why do you need so much complexity? But I always, as a trained as a sculpture, I wanted to make this more, but this was so complex, my hands could never do anything like that. So this just became an electronic microscope image that was, you know, really uh, descriptive. And that's all. And I did takes from all the angles so I could describe the object in, in, a, in a way to convey a little bit of the three-dimensional aspect of it. But I also found these specimens in the collection. They are the penises of the harvestman uh, in Tasmania. A scientist uh, in the 80s, a taxonomist, Glenn Hunt, um, really devoted his life to this um, genre of little spiders. They are actually in between a spider and, a, and an insect. They are a family on its own. They are called the opilionis. And he will tell the species apart by the shape of the genitalia. And these are all the um, tips and different shapes. So this is the piece that we have here. This is about less than a millimeter big. So how do I describe this to the world? So the little dish with the specimens, you can barely see. It's like, like a speck almost. Then we did these images of all the sides, uh, but it's still not descriptive enough. I want to tell the story of this organ um, and all of this. And I was always, as a sculptor, I wanted to make them in 3D as objects. But I know that my hands couldn't do that. I, um, I, I wanted to make them like Lisa makes her sculptures with, you know, to describe something, but I thought it was too sensual to use my hands. I didn't want to be a woman that is making phalluses. I, I don't think it was a good look. Um, but I still love this, this um, concept of Barbara Maria Strandford, which um, things knit together matter and meaning. So I want the matter to tell the story. So I ended up using the technology of 3D modeling and 3D printing. 
and I made a series of nine harvestman penises. The, um, you saw the scans, you saw how intricate they are, and I worked with an industrial designer and animator to replicate this uh, with technological and artistic uh, virtuosity. So we really pushed the technology of, of modeling and 3D printing for something that was organic, that was very delicate, very fine detail, and then um, and we would try to make it as accurate as possible so scientists will um, respect me because I wanted it to be like, you know, scientific illustrator had the exact, you know, the proportions, everything, so rigor. So I did it for both ways, so it would be a beautiful object, but also uh, a scientific model. I also use the same technology um, for 3D renderers. So you can also use the same file to make uh, two-dimensional works. And I kind of had a play with scale with that. And that's how I showed it. I showed the objects, the prints of um, the renders and the prints of the scans. But I still um, had a bigger picture in mind, which is how to tell, uh, how, how to contextualize this work. As a sculptor, I had always known that the context, in a way, dictates how an object is read. And museums do that. So if we find a piece of stone of a certain shape somewhere, uh, it not, might not be art. But we contextualize it, and then it's an artwork. And then it, you know, you contextualize it a little bit more, and you know where it's from. So all of these stories are described by the context. So to make my objects speak, I made the Museum of Copulatory Organs, which was shown in 2012 at the Cine on Cocotu Island. Um, I had my own little building, and I put the signage outside and we have 250,000 visitors. I built these cases to show these very small objects. I lit them, and I had a few words incorporated here and there um, that contextualized the work in the scientific manner. But then I had finally the final piece, which was how I had an audience, and the audience was looking, and the, the audience was reading and talking to the sculptures. This is uh, before the, it went to the Biennale. This is kind of my studio. All these objects were displayed, um, and all of them are telling a story of uh, sexual reproduction, evolutionary biology, the dynamics between males and females. Um, uh, some of them tell stories of, of violence, like these are love darts that snail throw love darts to each other. Some of them talk about um, morphology and diversity. This is pollen, which is a male uh, seed of the plant. Uh, it's like the sperm of the plant, and each sperm has, each uh, pollen has a different shape. And it's the same with genitalia. And then I had the audience um, looking. Thank you. Hello, uh, Don Gore is my name. Um, uh, I'm a, uh, a habitual and intuitive object maker. Um, I uh, was a student here at RMIT in 1973 
uh, a third year student in 1973 and I'm lucky enough now to be a member of staff in the Sculpture Studios. Uh, in 1973 I had a full head of thick curly brown hair. Uh, look what Sculpture's done for me. <laughs> um, and I have some images here. Um, So the, I only have sort of four images plus the work that I have in the uh, exhibition here. Um, and th this work is a work that I made um, in 1978. The work that's here was made in 1988 and there's another image of some work that I made this year. Um, my relationship to sculpture um, is one that goes back quite a way. I've, like most of us I guess, always been interested in making things. Making things seems to be something that's uh, unique to all us human beings. We all love making things in one way or another. And the things that I have made have always been things mainly to do with the visual aspect of them rather than the sort of functional thing. And uh, so in my mind it was always a sort of foregone conclusion that sculpture would be a thing to do. And not long after I finished uh, art school I was always a bit flummoxed by people asking questions about why, why do you make sculpture? And it's still a, uh, still a question that I have trouble with these days. But the response that I kind of dreamt up for that question was that I make sculpture, I involve myself in art for the more or less the same reasons that other people might involve themselves with gardening or dressmaking or why is it that uh, retired gentlemen spend a lot of time making model railway sets. And so there are those sorts of connections to making art and to that extent it's not such a uh, different sort of thing to what other uh, activities are. There are degrees of involvement I guess, there are some people that, that make art just now and then, there are some people that make art a little bit more regularly than that, there are other people whose lives revolve around making art. And so it, it then becomes a question of um, sort of degrees, I, I suppose. Um, the, the sorts of materials that I involve myself with at the moment really is just making things out of metal. Not because it was necessarily a conscious choice, but it was connected with just the habit of making objects. And it's, uh, for my purposes, sort of quite a convenient thing uh, to do. Um, and Maria touched on something that sort of rattles around in my mind uh, often, and that is the thing about the audience. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the thing about the audience because I think most of us have an image 
of an audience that is a sort of particular kind of size. We don't really think too much in terms of the extremes of things. Uh, the reason that I've included this work is because it does reflect in my career a sort of then, you know, way back 78. Uh, but also the fact that it is uh, in a fairly uh, reasonably remote part of the country and there's probably three or four people that are the audience that see it sort of now and then. Um, and so the, the work that I make, uh, I, I feel that it's more to, it's sort of quite a lot to do with the object or the, the idea and it's one or two people looking at that singular idea. These are quite small objects. This is something I made in uh, 2000, no, 1999 actually, and it is a sort of combination of three little objects that are only, you know, about as big as that jug, maybe not even as big as that. And um, it was part of a response to the dilemma that I saw in art making where you have lots of ideas, you only really get round to addressing some of those ideas. Usually most artists have a, a kind of backlog of things that they uh, either hope to make or have planned to make and I'm no different than that. I have uh, a sort of recording method where I keep records of all of the things that I'm interested in making and only some of the things you get round to doing. So I tried to work out a way of dealing with that and um, the thing that I do these days is sort of refer to things that I was interested in making about 10 years ago and make those things these, you know, currently um, using uh, information that I have at the present. So it's a sort of com combination of yesteryear and, uh, and today. And these small works were uh, a response to trying to catch up with the backlog. So I made 10 small sculptures that were to do with uh, works that I'd been contemplating making um, 10 years in the past. It's a rather elaborate sort of thing to do. But it satisfies my nervousness about not being able to do uh, most of the things that I was interested in doing. And uh, this uh, final work here, this, this is a uh, set of objects that I made uh, last year. Um, and they were exhibited at the Stephen McLaughlin Gallery down in uh, in the Nicholas building. Um, even though they're four, four objects, it's really to do with one work, one particular uh, work. Um, and once again, there's this issue of uh, a sort of, not that it's really all that extreme, I think Maria's work in terms of the scale is more extreme than this, but I'm kind of interested in making small objects you know, the, the, the studio work that I do mainly these days is to do with smaller scale things. Uh, they just seem to be more easily managed. And so 
uh, all of these are welded mild steel. I rely to a certain extent on the profiles of some uh, industrially produced steel girders and things. A lot of the, the, uh, the shapes and things I've uh, made myself purposefully. Um, yeah. So these are the sorts of things that I'm doing these days. Um, I will. I'll flick. I've got quite a lot of slides here, so I'm, I'll flick through some of them and just quickly explain others. I'm starting on this work because I'll start off by explaining I'm not a trained sculptor. Sculpture has sort of come into my practice quite um, naturally as an evolution of the practice, really. Um, I trained at RMIT as a painter, and it's the only medium I really don't work with now. That's no indication of the teaching here at RMIT, but it just doesn't seem to fit in with the subject matter that is the primary sort of driver of my practice. So for about 25 years or longer now, I've been working with the subject of humans' relationship with apes. And the reason I do that is because we all belong in the same family of animals. And I think that's something that sort of is missed... Um, is that we actually are animals. I think a lot of people don't really sort of register that. Um, so uh, that this work started many years ago when I was living in Berlin when uh, the wall was coming down and I started looking at how, how different cultures collide and even cultures, two very separate cultures that come from the same genetic stock, which was East and West Germany, West, East and West Berlin. But when the wall came down, these people that came through that wall were so different. And I was going to the zoo a lot and I was looking at the apes and the way people were relating to the apes. And I was going to the West Berlin Zoo and the East Berlin Zoo and seeing how different people related quite differently to the apes. And it started making me think about sort of working with the subject of, of primates um, as a body of work and as a conceptual body of work. This is uh, a few years later. Uh, um, it was, a, it was a, a series of photos I took in Antwerp Zoo. I was living in Brussels after Berlin. And um, this chimpanzee I was working with in this photograph actually died around just very briefly, very shortly after I took the, these photos. Um, there was a taxidermist who lived outside of Brussels and he got my phone number. The zoo told him that I'd been working with this um, chimpanzee and he said, would you like to come and see the chimp? It's in my deep freezer. I'm stuffing him for the Brussels Museum. So I went along to his workshop and very, in a very confronting way he opened this very big deep freezer and this chimpanzee was, was in there gutted and um, bound and deep frozen and um, I asked if I could take a death mask of that chimpanzee in order to make some sort of sculpture to commemorate um, his life basically. So that's what I did. This was a, a, a death mask that I then turned into a sculpture which has formed a, a lot of works. The basis of this work has formed a lot of works that have come since. Uh, this was done in, in a, uh, a polyurethane and I don't think you can see up close but there's still a lot of the chimp hairs coming out of the side of the face in this work. Um, as I said, from this work I then started applying plastic surgery to that face and I started animating animating the face. This is a work that was uh, shown at the National Gallery in Canberra in 2002, I think, or three, which won the National Sculpture Prize. And it was a series of these busts in bronze developed from, from that original death mask. 
Um, so it was reanimating the face and there was a sound piece that came along with that work. This is now sort of where it's at. It's quite interestingly, this work has gone from being the death mask of that ape and has actually turned into almost self-portraits. So uh, I did a series of sort of um, tongued portraits which sort of showed the evolution of the tongue and how, that, how it creates a whole different atmosphere. That's obviously an aggressive pose. There was a sort of salacious tongue, a whole lot of stuff. I work with a lot of different mediums. This work then has evolved into a very large three-metre work um, called White Ape, which looks at some sort of philosophy that I've read about the whole notion of skin and, and uh, there's a term that was uh, humans are coined the white ape. Um, so it was relating back to the human and the ape, mixing it together. Um, I work with a lot of different ways and techniques depending on the conceptual basis of what I want to say. Uh, like Maria, I've worked with these three-dimensional workings and um, I take sections of castings, get them scanned, three-dimensionally cut them out, mix them up with hand-modelled um, works. And that's what this is. It's a mixture of the death mask, the original death mask. So it's uh, a CAD three-dimensional scanning of the death mask, blowing that up, cutting those folds and creases into something that I've carved, basically. So you've got some of the document, the real sort of elements of that, of that original ape in this work. This is going back many years, and it actually refers back to a show where Maria showed her flea circus, which I saw in Atlanta, when was it, 1997 or something? 98. 98. And I did this work originally for that same festival. Um, but originally I developed this work, and this is, now, this is a precursor for the large four-metre bronze finger that's um, at the Bandura campus. Uh, this was made in latex, which was due to financial reasons. I couldn't afford bronze. Um, and it was a two-metre finger that was originally designed to go into the Atlanta Zoo. And I designed it in this soft... It was stuffed in a soft polyurethane um, made of latex so that it was non-toxic. And it was designed for ba the baby gorillas to climb on and, and to create, like, a, a toy. So it was... Um, it's a gorilla thumb... And it's based on our whole notion of the opposable thumb, fingers. So it's the scientific thing of, of what makes humans and apes sort of separate from other animals and what makes humans separate from other apes is, is this ability to use tools and have the opposable thumb, um, which is the reason I used it. But while I was in Atlanta and had this work, which sadly when I got there they decided that it looked too phallic um, and that it needed to go downtown. So it went downtown into a series of open shop front windows. Um, I don't know if you ever went down to that, yes. that section. and um, So it was shoved into the shop window, which wasn't really where it was designed to be, which was disappointing for me because I had really designed it as this play, as this play thing. Um, this is actually, it came back to Australia and was in, is in a show under the Westgate Bridge, and which is why it's, it's, it's dissolving, basically, where you can see all the material, it's all, all the stuffing's coming out, the latex is dissolving under the water. I was living in Brussels at the time, which was around the time I did those the photograph that I showed before, and my brother rang me in June and he said uh, he lived in Beaconsfield Parade in Port Melbourne and he went for a walk after a big storm and he said that he found what he thought was a body on the foreshore at 7 o'clock in the morning and this finger had come unhinged and gone down all those tributaries and that landed outside his house and he found it, which I thought was quite nice. <laughs> Um, so this, this work, once again, has evolved into other works, into bronze fingers. And basically, over the years, I've done the whole hand of, 
of a chimpanzee. So these are different fingers from the hand. Uh, I'm in the photo show scale. I'm always good for scale because I'm so short. Uh, but they're roughly between two, one and a half metres to two metres tall, cast in bronze. Um, it's once again about communication and language, um, non-verbal communication. Um, when I was in Atlanta, when I had that large finger in 98, I also had a residency at the Ape Language Centre or the, re the la Language Centre at, at Yerkes University or Georgia State University. And they were teaching chimpanzees to learn a keyboard system, um, a lexigram system, and they also were taught sign language. So I, I had the, the, the pleasure of going and working with one particular chimpanzee during that residency, and I also went back the following year for another residency to work with that chimp. And I, it was that whole thing of using the fingers and to watch the fingers as a way of communicating, which I thought was an interesting way of bridging this sort of human ape sort of world and bringing it even closer together. Um, that's, a, that's a more recent one, which is the pinky. Uh, which is actually at Karen Woodbury Gallery at the moment. So that, that's about, it's all in scale to the other fingers, it's about 1.4 metres high. These works, um, this is a, a, the foot of a, an orangutan. Uh, once again, it, it goes back to this thing where, where I use the chimp uh, face and also the work that's here with the chimp hands. This came from the same body of work. And in those hands, I'm very interested in hand, hand lines. We've got this, there's a line called the simian line. And about 5% of humans have this line, which goes directly across the palm. But it's predominantly apes that have this line, and it is called the simian line, and it denotes what, it, uh, what apes are. Um, the whole hand palmistry line thing I find really fascinating. <coughs> um, it tells a lot medically about who you are and how you're formed. Everyone's hands are, are individual, they're lines on their hands. And, um, so with this work and the hands in the other room, I modelled these works, I enlarged models of the hands, and then I got them three-dimensionally cut. So I got the, ha the palm lines of these particular apes and scanned them through using a CNC router. They were cut into, a f into foam, which I laid into these hands. So by doing that, I'm creating this documentation of those particular apes I worked with. They're all individuals that I've worked with over the years in different zoos. Um, and it gives this identity to the work, which... Um, I like. I like it to have this sort of documentary effect rather than, like what you were saying, Maria, there's a, a point where you're looking at making work where you have to work out how you approach it and what you're trying to say with that work. And I, I needed a point of, of separation from it. So I felt that if I modelled completely everything, it would lose that complete originality of that identity of that work. I also like that whole thing of the King Kong-esque thing of blowing things up and making them larger and, and separating them from the form and, and creating a, a point of abstraction from the actual form. This is um, a palm of a foot of an orangutan. And symbolically, I, I really love that work in that it's quite nurturing. It's like a cradle, almost. And instead of the foot being down on the earth, it's, it's up in this sort of collecting sort of fashion. I'm showing this is just a detail from the works which you can see in the chimp, the back of the hands. I do a lot of this skin texturing on, on my sculptures, which I love doing, um, and it relates very strongly to my drawing practice, which um, I, I use the same technique. It's a crisscross hatching of, of, of line works, which is the same what I use in the wax of, of, the, um, of the works that I make. And you see that sort of crisscross hatching in all the, all the sculptures that I make pretty much in those large sort of bronzes. 
Um, I work a lot with stained glass over the years, um, dealing with, this was actually once again from Atlanta, thinking about when we were there, I don't know if you remember, or it might have been the residency had the year after, but there was a, um, a, quake, a, a preacher's conference on, and um, uh, you know, there was this whole thing about sort of uh, theories of evolution against creationist theory, which I've always been very interested in, and I think we're about to be introduced that in Australia with uh, Abbott's introduction of new religious teaching, so that's nice. We'll be having that conflict of education again. Uh, so this work very directly looks at that whole uh, collision of, of evolutionary theory against uh, theories of, of um, creationism. I worked also with uh, a chimpanzee's, um, the cover of Time magazine, one of my gallerists years ago gave me this image of a chimp called Ham, who was the first chimp sent up into outer space by NASA. And once again, like the white, the white ape and the, and the commemorating this poor chimp that was stuffed into a deep freezer in, in Antwerp, um, I wanted to commemorate the life of this chimpanzee who was taken directly from, from Africa um, as a six-month-old baby along with three other chimps. He was placed into NASA, trained rigorously for six months, and then um, was placed into this, um, into this vessel and sent into outer space. Uh, he had a lot of trouble in that journey, which um, uh, created, created a lot of electrical shocks and things because of some of the malfunctions in the equipment. And then he came back down to Earth and he had this very quick but commemorative sort of journey. So I decided to, rather than use religious windows, to use stained glass as a way of commemorating his life. So these are on stainless steel frames and they hang from the ceiling and they have light going through them, and they're, but they're traditionally made. So the series of those windows were just, uh, yeah, just his journey. Um, once again, uh, I use mediums and, and styles according to the conceptual basis of what I want to make. This body of work are all a um, series of monkeys that have been discovered recently. Um, so there was no actual taxonomic record of them, but they had sightings. So I had to work from sightings. Um, I even travelled into central Borneo with a group of Penang trekkers and some scientists that I've worked with to try and capture an image of one of them, uh, which we did see one, one of this specimen. And just through discussing it with different taxonomists from Australia, um, ANU and other scientists I work with, I've formulated these monkeys. And I also worked with Melbourne Museum in their sort of skeleton section to get the skeletons of their closest relatives um, to try and form the scale and size and shape. So for that reason, I've worked solely by modelling. And since then, they've actually had some photos taken of some of these, and I was quite proud. This is a mangabe, which is in Tanzania, and um, it's actually quite close to what the original one looks at. So I was quite happy with my, uh, my, my skills in getting it looking like that. This is a, 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 a silver langur that um, has only just been discovered in Borneo. The reason these monkeys are being discovered is... Basically, they're cutting down all the environments and it's opening up all these forests that have never really been um, open to, to mankind before. So they're actually being discovered and automatically being placed on the extinction list. So it's a pretty sad sort of state of affairs. And over the years with my work, I have started working environmentally quite a lot because of the places that I visit. Um, I've watched the destruction and I've been exposed to the horror of what's going on. So. Um, it seems to be creeping up more and more into, into my practice um, quite naturally. Uh, it's a silvery gibbon. 
um, which is a particular subspecies that's on the endangered list. Um, as I said, this, these works um, are becoming, you know, in, in periods becoming environmentally charged. I work a lot with different environmental groups. This was made for an exhibition in Kuala Lumpur, which I held at the National Gallery with um, the WWF, and we held a whole series of forums, etc., to go along with discussions about the environment, and particularly orangutan and forest destruction. Um, this work has um, flashing lights. It's to do with... Com- uh, commercialisation, um, quite sort of st- in a stereotypical way, using lights um, in the same way that you know a lot of Asia has a lot of lights to denote commercial value. Um, these lights in the background, there's a, a pattern which comes from the Penang and the Ebans. They're self-made tattoos. They often do tattoos of ferns on their skin, and that uh, is symbolic of the rege- regeneration of life. So it's that fern prong that's coming unfurling. Um, so this work is about life and death, basically. Um, I, I've got other, uh, another slide, but I, I probably will go into... How are we going for time? Probably yeah. I'll, I'll go into a work that I did very recently, and um, a lot of my work seemed to evolve and, and work from each other, um, very much like that series of photographs then turned into that sculpture, which turns into another work. Um, it's quite organic the way things sort of t- tend to flow and uh, recently I had a very, <clears throat> quite a serious heart operation where I had a transplanted aorta um, but co- coincidentally I was working with a group of scientists in, from uh, Leeds University who are doing research into gorilla heart care. Um, so I decided to get a whole lot of my imagery and they provided me with a whole lot of imagery, uh, echocardiogram imagery and MRI footage of the gorillas that they're working with and I worked with a science animator um, in Melbourne who we formed a half gorilla, half human heart. So it's half my heart and half the gorilla's heart. Um, and it was presented very recently at White Night at the Forum Theatre as a nine metre high... Um, uh, it, it's like a... It's called Musion, which is, so it's actually a three-dimensional form working in... Uh, it was animated and, and working on stage. It looked like it was three-dimensional, but it was... Um, like a, a hologram, basically. And I've got footage of that. Can, you, can we go back to the... Uh... And I'll... It's, it, it's a little small video. Unfortunately, I'm in it talking. I'm not... Sorry, I have to... But if everyone wants... It, only go, it goes for three minutes. Is that all right? Oh, if we just get a different just to... I'll just... A bit I'll um, just play you a little bit of it and uh, fast forward it. Is there sound on this? No, I don't know. No. That's right. Uh, This is the work. It's about eight eight and a half metres high and was on stage utilising this very particular material which is almost like a glad wrap that's stretched very, very strongly um, in a frame and through a projector it projects an image three-dimensionally on into space. Uh, in that there was also footage of my operation and the, and the operation of the gorilla. So it's quite, it was very graphic and... Um, move it along. And there was a sound work which I did. I, I work with a, with a musician called Charlie Owen and we do a lot of sound pieces that work with these works, which the original work from the National Gallery with the chimps, he did the sound work with that. The sound came from my own heart. We had the different different sounds that come from the heart passageways and the muscles projected around the theatre 
So it was a three-dimensional space, basically. I, I designed the work so it was almost like you're walking into the cavity of the chest. So, yes. So, um, as I was saying before, I work with a lot of different mediums and and ideas to sort of flow along into the practice. Um, th- I'm, hi, I'm Dan Walmering, and we'll see how we get this up and running. Right. Firstly, um, thank you for inviting me, and also for the marvelous exhibition that the staff here put on outside and in here, of course, because it's um, it's so good to see a bit of history and also a bit of ingenuity and some people working at the cutting edge. It's really a marvelous uh, a marvelous exhibition, and. Having said that, of course, you may not know, but that uh, structure right over there next to Maria is a work that I completed in, now think back, 1985, which almost seems like yesterday to me, but believe me, it was a long time ago. So what I've decided to do, and when we got an email a couple days ago, I forget by who now, but someone from the gallery saying, oh, by the way, you're going to have to talk about your work in less than 10 minutes or something around that line, I thought, oh my God, how am I going to manage this? So... What I've decided to do is to um, go back to that work, 1985, at a time in which I was um, teaching at Gippsland Institute in Latrobe Valley. It was a new job. I was very fortunate to get an opportunity to teach in an art school, and I'm sure Don and others who've ever had that um, wonderful privilege, if you like, amongst the headaches, there are so many positive things that go along with that. So, uh, Vox Vug was created in... 84, 85, and then it was acquired in 86, I believe, I forget now, but it had to do with materials that were suddenly available down in Gippsland in a regional art school. Tremendous amount of excitement and energy, and the staff was relatively young then, of course, and everyone was eager to make a mark, so to speak. So we'll start off. This is a, this is a PowerPoint that... Um, I've actually, uh, I'm cheating a little bit, I presented this a couple weeks ago to the Victorian Woodworkers Association, but I thought it would be relevant in this context too, because we'll be looking at two works. I've got about four strands, like others, to our practice, and that is uh, working within a commercial gallery for something like, uh, I think I'm now the oldest artist at this gallery for 23 years at the same gallery. And I remember when I joined, so fortunate to get in, there were some older artists, and now I'm moved up a few steps to become the older artist now, at least chronologically, so it's a bit, uh, yeah, things move on. Secondly, I do work for um, outdoor commissions, and of course we all love residencies, and I'll be looking at uh, one residency in this um, upcoming presentation, of which I'm very fortunate. I'm off next week to Penang for two months as artist in residence in Georgetown. So in any event, um, I'll be looking also, we'll be looking at a most recent work, and I'm very um, keen to share with you the, the most recent work. But also, I do speak and I present at conferences as well. And of course, being a full-time academic, that really takes care of just about everything in my life, including domestic re- responsibilities, of course. So um, I'm going back in time. Next year, I'll be in this wonderful country for 40 years. I came out when the then Whitland government, of which 
some of you would be very familiar with, decided to put a lot of money into education. And so what they did is they went on a worldwide recruiting spree, and they virtually brought over thousands of teachers, mainly secondary school teachers across the country. And they were very careful not to select people that are a little bit radical. It was the height of the Vietnam War, so most of us came out of the Midwest, originally from Minnesota. Now, we were sort of uh, given a line that we were selected one out of 12. For every 12 applicants, you were selected as the one. Now, we found out later on, of course, they virtually took anyone who put their hands up and did all the paperwork, of which there was quite a bit of paperwork they had to get through, including the police clearances and so on and so forth, medical certificates. So I came out under that scheme. So thank you, Gough, um, and the government. You provided me with a great opportunity, and I've never looked back. All right. So as you can see, uh, uh, it's self-explanatory. Uh, in Dakota County, uh, family farm, which is still in the uh, family name. And we're looking at two structures. I'm really interested in buildings and architecture and the idea of, of, of aging, I suppose, in a way of how we all are being transformed on a regular basis, but particularly with buildings. And unfortunately, we're losing a lot of that character in the Midwest, and of course the same thing here in Australia. What I've been doing recently is just going around Victoria on my motorbike with a friend, and we're documenting old buildings, and you'll see very similar sorts of images as you'll see here. So that's the family granary and a new Quonset, which is quite old now, when it was originally built in 1963 and then burnt down and rebuilt, the building on the right. Um, the sort of entropy of things winding down, and the same thing happens within any sort of contextual sort of art movement and art schools. There's a time in which things speed up and then they sort of kind of come to a, um, a conclusion, if you like, and then they take off again. And this is really interesting and important in any discipline as we see in this exhibition with, you can see that sort of history, that wonderful rich history in the lineages associated and the times and the practitioners and all of that happening. And then moving into more of a contemporary sphere using new technologies, new attitudes, new dimensions, and all of that keeps the discipline alive and exciting. And I think, quite frankly, we're in for another and we're another sort of huge sort of shift, but perhaps we can talk about that later. So anyhow, we're back looking at some dilapidated architecture. And of course, the building is no longer there. It's been, it, what happened was that a lot of um, wood enthusiasts came around and actually went through it before it collapsed and took out all the best pieces of cedar and there were different types of pine that's very usable of course in building and of course wood is now being seriously looked at as we see in Melbourne and with the interior architects and even architects themselves are using it much more. So the building is no longer there but lo and behold there's another building and this is a huge, huge um, steel fabricated uh, structure that's been positioned there recently. Um, there's a lot of, there's not a lot, there's, of course, uh, the family farm had a mixed sort of industry, if you like, from dairy and poultry and uh, swine and horses. We had, a, a, it had to be very diverse, so in order to survive, that was one way in which you could keep things ticking over. And my father was very clever because he never got to the stage where he had to capitalize to such an extent to spend a lot of money to keep the family farm going. So, 
what this building is designed and built for is, it says comments on society. It's there to house people's toys over winter. Of course, with the snow and the cold, what do people do with their boats and other objects they own? They can't keep it uh, on the, in the driveway or even in the garage. They bring it out here, and my brother, all he does is rent out space over the year. In fact, there's an airplane in there as well. The top wing comes up. Okay. Enough of that. So I'm looking, I went back for a residency in this wonderful venue called the Anderson Interdiscipline Center for, um, for, for the Arts and Science. And it's in Red Wing, Minnesota, along the Mississippi. And of course, when you have the opportunity to go on a residency, which we all enjoy, of course, it just puts you into another creative gear. It really is good to start afresh in a new place bringing along some of your artistic baggage, but more importantly, you create new challenges because you don't have those distractions that you have on a regular sort of basis every day. And this is Red Wing, a river town. As you can see, a huge uh, a bluff, sand, limestone bluff in the background, milling, and of course, a lot of factories. And some of you might even be wearing or have the occasion to wear Red Wing shoes. This is the original place. They still manufacture them there. Of course, a lot of it's been sublettered out to other countries as, as the man picked up. Um, and here we are at the Anderson Center. Charles Anderson was the person who started this incredibly interesting complex going back to 1904, 1905. He was a dairy farmer. He came out from Sweden. His father did. He uh, was born in the States, and he was a farmer, he was uh, a scientist, he went to Berlin to get his PhD, and he came back and he had this idea, a really novel idea at the time, which paid huge dividends, and that idea was what, what happens when you take a seed and you put some heat and put pressure on to it, and of course it expands. So he uh, patented puff wheat, puff rice, and of course this became part of a huge sort of industry enterprise that took off internationally, became extraordinarily wealthy, but he put a lot back into the local community, which is part of this complex. So in the actual complex there's, uh, as you can see, barns and galleries and artist studios, so there's a ceramic workshop, there's a glass workshop, and of course they have artists in residence throughout uh, summer, they have them on at the moment, which for the most part includes a lot of writers that come in and artists. I was the only sculptor there at that time, so I, had, um, I was in sort of a unique position. And it's really good to uh, go off in residencies when you're mixing with other people from outside your discipline, particularly writers, because they're very interesting as artists and practitioners in the way they approach their work. So at the end of each day, they would read back to us what they've written during the day, and we'd come in and critique it, and so on and so forth. So these are poetry barns in the local vicinity. I just want to give you a feel for the place. I'll move along very quickly. I'm mindful of the time. And the residency studio, which is here, where I'm starting to build a piece of work, which is quite large, and I didn't realize to the extent um, how large it was going to be. You sort of have this intuitive idea, especially when you scale up, and it's interesting to hear about scale because working at... <laughs> particular uh, sizes, the difference between size and scale, you get a, a degree of confidence, but when you're aiming quite large, you suddenly have to take sort of uh, risks that you don't ordinarily take. But of course, residencies do allow that to happen. 
They also have a sculpture garden there, too. So the work was being created for this um, site. It's called Crib Works. So what I was doing was looking at the local farm architecture in the uh, township in the county of Dakota County and looking at ways and means in which you could take away some of the generic abstractions of those wonderful shapes and forms and bring it back into a new construct. So within the actual work itself, there are pieces from local farm, farmers that donated uh, pieces of metal, pressed metal you can see, uh, uh, corn cribbing, which is, I'm not sure if you know what corn cribbing is, it rolls out and it's used for snow fencing to keep snow from blowing in onto roads and also for storing ear corn. It's brought in and then it's spread out in a circular form and it fills up and they add another layer of corn cribbing around and so on and so forth. They're wonderful, beautiful structures which you don't see in the Midwest anymore because of um, um, the mechanical nature of harvesters and everything. So I was part of that in my childhood. So a lot of this was good for me to go back and kind of have a bit of, um, this is 2008, a way to kind of pay homage to my background, uh, my beginnings, the where it all started. And the resulting work is in the garden there. And the rotating vent is just, I just love rotating vents. There's something about these circular forms. They're very sculptural. Of course, they're kinetic. And I just um, try to use them when necessary because of that sort of um, soft and quiet function and beautiful sort of symmetry that occurs. They used to be very expensive, by the way, but now they're relatively inexpensive. So, as you can see, there's a number of things I was trying to do at the time and making uh, sort of a tribute to those times and the local sort of farm architecture and the families and the social fabric of these communities, which are slowly disappearing because of larger corporations coming in and buying up. Same thing here, except perhaps arguably even more so in the States. Um, very quickly... Um, and of course, uh, this, this structure is already starting to show its age by way of color, becoming more gray, and it's becoming... Oh, there's the other thing I had to take on board. There's a, there's a bit of a large foundation underneath is that this is a tornado alley in Minnesota. So one of the first things I had to address, and there's some wonderful stories written about tornadoes that went through this particular part of uh, Red Wing, Minnesota, but they bounced over the Anderson Center years ago that's wonderfully recorded in their, their library in that old house that we saw previously. So what I had to do is ensure that the actual structure would stay if we had a, a it wouldn't stay if a tornado went through of course but we do get really strong fronts they're called that go through and they can be terribly damaging. Okay very quickly down at Lawn recently I think some of you may have seen this exhibition um, Ocean Chimney a concept a drawing a way in. Uh, most people here would be familiar with Lawn, a beautiful place along the coast that's overly populated, arguably. And it brings together a lot of practitioners, mainly working within the conventions of outdoor work and being responsive to the site, but also just bringing in objects, per se, and celebrating them in their own right. And there's room for all of that. And it's a huge sort of undertaking, these sorts of events. And there's talks and there's activities and programs. So Ocean Chimney, I was trying to create this sort of suggestive notion conceptually between some underground passage between the site and the ocean itself. So it was to be seen as a marker and also 
um, a structure that had some referential sort of uh, uh, relationship to the site, but not uh, subliminally. It was more in your face, hence the color. I'm working in the Monash Sculpture Studio. This was in early January this year, and we had this one week of unbearable hot weather, and there's no air conditioning up on level six of Monash Sculpture, so we just nibbled, nibbled away each day. And the other component was made at my home studio, as you can see here, um, undercover, of course, and I was working, again, on a hunch two components being brought together, what's going to happen, will it work, so on and so forth. There's another element to this work on the left, we're looking at small cast concrete shapes that have been dyed, stained. And these were forms that I've collected over many months from oh, food products, you know, the plastic shapes that are left over if you buy things in these sorts of conditions. And of course, some of it was um, sourced along a beach in South Melbourne, which I added to my collection of all these forms. So there were two reasons for that. One was to use as ballast in the work. They do get some southwesterly gales that come through here, and I was forewarned about that because of the height of the work, so I wanted to get some weight, but also maybe subtly just suggesting, not trying to be didactic, a little bit about waste in society, so on and so forth. Now, what happened is that throughout the four weeks in which the work was cited, I didn't expect this. I was expecting those uh, objects to be pinched or taken away. And we discussed, I discussed this with the curator, well, maybe we should tie them down and so on. But at the end of the day, I said, no, just leave them. If they go, they go. But what happened was, quite surprisingly, that every time I went down to view the work, they were assembled in a different configuration. And <laughs> I was told that children especially took to them because they thought it was part of the process, was to go in, what are these objects? Oh, we can play with that, we can build things. So throughout that four weeks, these are sort of happy accidents, a bit of serendipity that I didn't plan for, but it was a wonderful sort of thing that happened. And of course, as we all know, Lawn is a, a great place to visit and to chill out and, and move around. So this work, completed recently, I was trying to set up a, an optical sort of visual sort of um, vibrancy between the verticals and the horizontals, hence in the early drawing, but of course it became something other than that. But it was the idea you start off with and then what happens later is more exciting. The audience, which has been referred to today as well, what sorts of things do you want from your audience? Who is your audience and what do you want from them? So again, um, originally constructed like this, but of course uh, throughout the four weeks they were in fact slotted into that uh, cylinder insert inside. I don't know how they got them in there, but they did, and they were very difficult removing out. So, um, ocean chimney, blah, 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 blah. Uh, again, there's a bit of a teaching thing here, but again, what uh, I went down for a day and, and talked and stayed, and we, which a lot of the artists uh, were uh, requested to do, and I just listened to people. And what came out of it was I found most interesting um, remnants of old Australian buildings in the bush, dilapidated factories, industry components in the working class neighborhoods, market, lighthouse, and of course, last but not least, and surprisingly, but it was very, very obvious, someone said it reminded them of a pizza oven. I thought, right, there you go. So thank you very much.
thank you very much, uh, Maria, Lisa, Don, and Dan. Um, it's really fascinating hearing about all these you know, very different practices, but which do share a lot of um, very similar elements at the same time. So we might get into that just in a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask just a couple of quick questions, sort of trying to get the ball rolling. But if anyone is interested in asking questions as well, please shout out. And um, we are recording this, so try and speak as loudly as you can. Um, but I should introduce myself as well. Sorry, my name's John Buckingham. Um, I'm the collections coordinator here at RMIT Gallery, and um, I've been curating this show um, that's on at the moment. And uh, one of the one of the challenges when we were coming to this show and uh, sort of looking at how we could do it and what we could do was um, the, di well, the really the diversity of the uh, the works we have. RMIT has been collecting sculpture now for nearly 120 years, almost as long as the university's been running, in fact. Um, we opened up our sculpture department in 1887, I think it was, and um, we've, uh, we have uh, some plaster casts you'll see in Gallery 1, uh, which is the main space. We've had those almost as long as the university's been here, and they've been teaching aids and display uh, items as well. Um, and we've, in fits and starts, we've been collecting things as we go. Um, only very recently have we started a, a very concerted effort to um, uh, build on the sculpture collection. Uh, and b before that, it's been a very piecemeal um, approach to collecting. And so we have a huge range of things. Um, and the, the challenge for me was to try and build a coherent story out of that and uh, really talk not only to the history of RMIT as a teaching institution and what sort of the, the, the sculpture department has produced, but um, where we see um, the practice of sculpture is going in the future and looking at new technologies and things like that. Um, and so what really came to me as I was sort of looking at all the sculpture we have and thinking about what we could really talk about and bring out in this exhibition was the, the, the real shifts in practice um, going just over the last 50 years or so, in fact, um, when we had the very uh, abstract and minimal works coming out of the Centre Five and from artists like Clement Meadmore, um, and how that's shifted into more expressionist works, uh, and then finally into not just very figurative, because figuration has sort of uh, a standing um, practice within modernism as well, but... Um, very, very realist figuration. Hyper-realism is the term that's being bandied about at the moment, and I don't know if, if that's sort of going to be a lasting term or not, but it's, it's a buzzword. Um, and very, you know, a very one-to-one -one, um, study of uh, figures and things like that. Um, looking at... And you'll see, uh, obviously, Lisa's and uh, Maria's works and Sam Jinx's work as well in the main space, um, which look at uh, the human form and animal forms uh, in incredibly realistic detail um, and the, looking at well, what we were attempting to look at in the exhibition is why that's happened and how that's happened. So I wanted to ask our, our artists here today, what do, what do they see as being the, the major shifts in sculpture over the last few decades and where do you think sculpture is actually going? Huge question, I know. So, <laughs> well, I think that the the, uh, the terms of sculpture and painting and drawing, all of those sorts of things, are becoming, uh, even though they're still appropriate and very useful, 
Um, the, the name for it all really is uh, visual art and, uh, and I say that from the point of view of being involved in uh, a university art school which for the purposes of the university's convenience I expect those areas are kind of divided up into studios but when you look around at what's happening in all of those studios there's a real similarity right the way across so I think sculpture is still taking the more traditional aspects of what sculpture has been seen to be, along with gathering all this other stuff. Because artists are real opportunists, and a lot of, uh, a lot of the so-called new technology usually is messed around with by artists in the first place. And often, if it's not carried further, it's usually to do with the expense of it. And it's my impression with that sort of thing. So I think that there are, there are just many more opportunities to be able to do particular things that didn't exist in the past. And uh, so it's sculpture becoming much more broad than what it always has been, I think. Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, I think. Things change so dramatically. I mean, I remember when I had the piece in the National Sculpture Prize and I won it, and but I wasn't a sculptor and I, I copped so much flack from sculptors because it was not appropriate that someone who wasn't trained as a sculptor could actually be <coughs> making sculpture. And nowadays it's quite standard, I think, that people can utilise sculpture or any they grab aspects of practice to incorporate it and work conceptually with it. So I think that generally is a reflection of the way our minds are even evolving. You know, I think we all start think we are conceptualising things more and that could be something to do with the advent of the use of the computers and, and just this general change that's happening quite dramatically in our general society. I mean, I, I recently I, I, I've got to work in a sculpture survey called McClellan Sculpture Prize and uh, the work I put in is actually a sound piece with light and... Um, I had a lot of discussion with the director there about whether or not that was sculpture or not and my argument was that it's the idea behind this work is to actually create a three-dimensional feeling through the use of sound projecting, bouncing off a certain area and through the use of light, it will, in my, in, the aim is to create a three-dimensional form. So that takes sculpture to a very different level but I still consider that rather than being installation or multimedia I would call that three-dimensional sculpture. But it's working, trying to work with something that's not tangible in the sense that you can touch it. So it's not physical in that sense. So I think, yeah, I think it's opening up to a whole lot of interpretations and really the word sculpture is just a word. So I'm... Um, I think... Um the technological advances are going to really influence what happens next and what you were doing with the holographic, hologram mm -hmm. images and uh, it's allowing you to make representations that are three-dimensional and you know I just think the, um, the potential is enormous mm -hmm. and we have this drive towards um, like a hyper-realism because we can and we always have that desire of copying things um, accurately and that has always been celebrated um, in art. So I really think, think um, technology its definitely uh, a key driver of the next 
stage in sculpture. If this trend towards hyperrealism rather does continue, um, do you see abstraction as being uh, something that will be less popular in the coming years? Um, or, and I'm presuming it will come round again because everything comes round again. But um, do you think it will be, in the short term, less popular? I'll try and I'll try and tackle that. You've got some very loaded um, observations, which was really good. I think, um, first of all, I think the the um, and I'm coming from an institutional sort of uh, uh, context, being involved with education and being a practitioner in state colleges, CAEs, and now Monash University and the TAFE. And I've witnessed, unfortunately, the demise of studio areas. Unfortunately, I say. But also I've witnessed other positive things that have come out of that, in fact, setting up these areas at great expense and a lot of sort of um, energy that goes into it. And then it winds down for whatever reasons, and I won't get into all of that because a lot of it is managerial and political too. Having said that, um, I think really we're at the cusp of a huge sort of shift that's happening in many areas, and I'll come back to your question, Jonathan. I think twofold. Of course, technology and sort of cutting-edge sort of ways and means in making things. I went into Officeworks the other day and saw a 3D printer for $1,400. Now, granted, the objects that they were producing weren't the best in the world, but I, I say in two more years that will probably be down to three or $400. We have students that are making them online. They download online information in uh, other departments at the faculty at Monash, and they're bringing up their prototypes wanting to cast them, of course, in bronze and aluminum and so on and so forth. So in that sense, um, we don't know what's going to happen other than the um, idea if there's something new, if there's some new technique or technology that's out there, it's going to be used, and artists and sculptors will be using it. I think, and, and secondly, there's another thing that's happened to him witnessing this, and I think it's in part a... a, a sort of a backlash against the uh, flat screen, if I can just use it generically. If younger students are given the opportunity to make things, they, they actually respond very well, extremely well, and they want to become uh, involved with process and technique. I don't know if it's something to do with the crafting sort of uh, sentiment that's occurring right across society, but of course it links into fashion, design, Sculpture, interior architecture, and architecture. It's all kind of woven together. The idea of a personalized sort of way of making things and not following so-called trends and, and, and idealistic sorts of forms such as modernism and postmodernism and then abstraction and so on and so forth. Abstraction will be here. There's no question about that. And it will continue to change and morph itself through various buzzwords is organic abstraction. Of course, some of the things, if you looked at, I'm sure you would have seen, um, objects that are being made by major sculptors overseas, just extraordinary abstract forms that are coming out that are unbelievable in how they actually get those forms, too. So they're using new technologies. But it, it is abstract. It's, it's not objective in the sort of argumentative uh, conventions that we used to argue back in the 60s about abstraction and minimalism and so on and so forth. So I think, again, it's, it's going through another redefining itself in view of Rosalind Krauss's expanded field. There's, I think the field has just expanded even more so, in fact, um, under different conventions. Great. And I'd like to talk about, just to 
changed topics wildly now. Um, an important component of this exhibition is um, public art. And you'll see around the exhibition we have a lot of photos of the things we unfortunately were unable to bring into the gallery because of their size. Um, but our RMIT is very conscious of the need for art in public space and we've been looking at how we can develop that in future. But um, all four of you have uh, obviously um, put art out into the public domain. Um, how important do you feel it is, or in what ways do you feel um, that uh, art in the public domain can both popularise uh, sculpture uh, make, and help people to understand sculpture as a discipline? Um, and what problems does it face? So I know, I, Dan, I was doing a bit of research and I read a really great article that you wrote um, where you actually said the problem with public art is one, it's art, and two, it's public. Um, what sort of, how, how can, and there is a real backlash against a lot of public art, especially in Melbourne. So people probably remember the problems we've had with uh, Ron Robertson's Swan's Vault and even very classical works like um, the uh, Burke and Wills Monument. Uh, the people, we've had real trouble placing that. So what sort of uh, issues are there in really uh, bringing art out into the public domain? Again, big questions, I know, sorry. Lisa? Yeah. Lisa? Yeah. Thanks. Um, I haven't done a lot of public sculpture. I've, I've done some works, commissions for RMIT and, and more university level, but I'm always interested in Australia and public sculpture in that there is a, there is a conservatism which I think ruins the possibilities that are associated with what, you know, what could happen. I mean, I think sculpture should be something in the public which challenges people and it's something that they can identify with or relate to or discuss or be a part of. Whereas I think often in Melbourne anyway and I think in Australia, public sculpture is often seen as something that they would prefer to be almost just walked past and as decoration. Um, I think there's a lot of fear in the, in the councils and stuff that they're going to put something up like Ron Robertson Swan it's work that's going to create some sort of furor and, um, and sadly it's left with a lot of very average works that have been placed. Um, I would love to see really challenging works out in the public domain and, you know, Docklands does it a little bit but, um, and the university campuses do. I think they've got more of an opening to do that. But, um, yeah, it'd be great to see some really challenging stuff out there. And I think things like the Melbourne prize, urban prize attempts to sort of look at that but I don't think they really succeed um, in really dealing with the issues that public sculpture really because there are restraints in, in having work out in public, you know. It's not just that you can take a public, you know, a studio practice and sh shove it in the streets and it's going to work because often it doesn't. But, I I think, um, I'm very aware of the fact that we've yeah. done for an hour and a half. Okay. So um, this has been a fantastic and really primitive 